0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from antiwar.com, and this is anti-war news for Monday, September 12th, 2022. I hope everybody had a good weekend. The big news over the weekend is that Ukraine made some territorial gains in its northeastern counteroffensive. And the top story at antiwar.com today, Russia pulls back from areas in Kharkiv region as Ukraine makes gains. So on Saturday, Russia pulled back its forces from areas in Ukraine's northeastern Kharkiv region, as Kiev made its first significant territorial gains in its counteroffensive. So if you look at the map, if you're watching on video, this area that's highlighted in green is all territory that Ukraine has captured in just a few days. I believe uh, they started having some success on Thursday. So it's just been four days and it's a good chunk of territory. The main city in this region is Izium. Uh, if you're listening, uh, you could go check, look in the article. And I put in some maps from South Front uh, just to show uh, the, the territory that they took. Because if I just name the, the villages, you know, th- this gives you a better picture if you want to see it visually. Um, the Russian Defense Ministry announced Saturday that the troops that were stationed in the region around Izium and other areas were, they said that they were regrouping toward Donetsk in the Donbass region. So they tried to kind of downplay it. And the Russian Defense Ministry spokesman said that they were moving these troops to, quote, achieve the declared goals of the special military operation for the liberation of the Donbass, end quote. So throughout the war, Russia has made pretty clear that its main goal, one of its main goals is the, quote, unquote, Liberation of the Donbass region. That's where the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics are. They're self-declared breakaway states that declared independence from Kiev in 2014. After the U.S. backed the ousting of Viktor Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president, they rejected rejected the post-coup government. Um, So, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky, he celebrated the battlefield success and he said that Ukraine had captured about 2,000 square kilometers Not sure if that number is exactly right, and then I've seen other numbers floating around too, but that's what Zelensky said on Saturday. Russian-installed officials in the region advised civilians in the territory that Ukraine was retaking to evacuate and flee to Russia. That's because Ukraine has been cracking down on what they say are Russian collaborators, and that is a pretty significant concern. Um, and this is a big PR victory for Ukraine, a big propaganda victory, because if you're living in the Russian controlled areas of Ukraine, seeing what happened there, you might not think that you're you're really safe anymore because Ukraine, again, they've been really cracking down on collaborators for very insignificant things, including social media posts that, uh, you know, express support for Russia, actually linked to an article from AP in there where they they were with uh, some Ukrainian security services as they were going around and arresting people for stuff like that. So according to Al Jazeera and several other outlets, they said that witnesses described seeing traffic jams of cars with people leaving uh, the Russian held territory in the region headed for Russia and the Russian region of Belgorod, which borders Ukraine. They have set up facilities to help refugees as it seems like people are fleeing to Russia. And now Ukraine's success, it's spurring calls inside Russia for the government and for Putin to escalate and do what's necessary to ensure victory in the war. Again, this is a big PR uh, victory for Ukraine, and it's not a good one. It's bad for Russia in that sense. Since launching the invasion, Putin has framed the war as a special military operation. That's what they've been calling it. And he's hinted that Russia could escalate more and said that They've like barely gotten started. He said that back in July. Um, And one thing we haven't really seen from Russia is what they, is the real bombing of, of intentional targeting of civilian infrastructure across the country, which is what the U.S. does. You know, that's, for example, that's what the U.S. did when they invaded Iraq. They called it the shock and awe campaign. And they call it a strategic bombing campaign, but that's, I don't really like that term because it makes something very barbaric sound more sophisticated. So then on Sunday, there was reports of blackouts in Ukraine because Russia was apparently bombing electricity infrastructure. I didn't see any statements from Russia confirming that, but that's just the rumors and reports for now. But hopefully, I mean, you know, that an escalation like that doesn't happen because that would just, uh, you know, really destroy the country more. Um, so now Ukrainian officials... So, it's tough to say really what's going to happen here. So, this area of Kharkiv that Russia has withdrawn from, it's not part of the Donbass region, it's to the north of it. it then, then, the Donbass is the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. And then, Russia also controls territory in Zaporizhia Oblast and the Kherson Oblast. And that connects to Crimea. That gives them, you know, what you call a land bridge to Crimea. So if they narrow their goals to just the Donbass and a bridge to Crimea so they can, tr- can control the water source to the peninsula, then they might not try to push back into this region. But who knows what's going to happen? I don't want to speculate too much because I can't predict it. I'm not a military analyst either. So we'll see what happens if Russia tries to get back in there or or not. Uh, we don't know or if they can try to encircle Ukrainian troops that are there. Um, but we will see again. Now, Ukraine is using this to call for more support from the West, and that's what this next article is about. Ukraine makes a fresh pitch to the West for more weapons after Kharkiv gains. So this is Ukrainian Foreign, Ministry, Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba on Saturday. He made this pitch uh, during a meeting, uh, a joint news conference with German Foreign Minister Annalina Baerbach. She was in Kiev on Saturday. She showed up and Kuleba said that this counteroffensive shows that they can defeat the Russian military and that they should get more weapons to do so. He said, quote, we have demonstrated we are capable of defeating the Russian army. We are doing that with weapons given to us. And so I reiterate, the more weapons we receive, the faster we will win and the faster this war will end end quote. He also, he kind of took a shot at Germany for being more hesitant than other NATO countries to send Ukraine heavy weapons over the fear of provoking Moscow. He said, quote, every day while someone in Berlin is considering taking advice or consulting on whether to give tanks or not, someone dies in Ukraine due to the fact that the tank didn't arrive, end quote. So he's really laying on the guilt while Baerbach is there. And while she was in Kiev, She said that Berlin's support for Ukraine would not wane despite the long winter that Germany is facing due to soaring energy costs and less access to Russian gas. She said that they will stand by Ukraine for as long as necessary. So Ukraine's offensive, it first started showing success this past Thursday, which coincided with a meeting of what they call the Ukraine Defense Contact Group at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany. was chaired by secretary of defense lloyd austin and austin's message at this meeting which i went over in the last show when he announced new military aid for ukraine was that this is we're supporting ukraine for as long as as we need to for the long haul is a phrase he repeated several times in his speech um that was really the focus of it and zelensky He's going to have a chance to appeal directly to the U.S. arms industry later this month. Um, I just linked to an article from Kyle Anselin that he wrote over the weekend that says Zelensky, he's going to appear at this summit virtually with Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and other American weapons manufacturers. It's, at, it's going to be held on September 21st. It's going to be hosted in Austin, Texas, but Zelensky's going to um, you know, video link in and Ask them for weapons. Previously, I, I should have mentioned this in the article. Ukraine's defense minister basically made an open call to the to the defense industry, to the arms industry. The, he said that Ukraine can be the testing ground for all your weapons. So, again, it's just another example of how this is just such a boon. The longer this war goes on, uh, the more money there is for that industry to make. All right. The next one here, getting into kind of the sanction side of things. The U.S. warns of sanctions for buyers that don't abide by Russian oil price cap. So this, the U.S. and the G7, they're still going through, they're saying that they're going to go through with this Russian oil price cap. The Treasury Department on Friday, they issued what they called a preliminary guidance for this plan to implement the price cap on Russian oil that is shipped by sea. The guidance warned that buyers of Russian oil who don't abide by the price cap could be targeted by U.S. sanctions. It said that individuals who make significant purchases of oil above the price cap or provide false information about shipments of Russian oil may be a target for sanctions enforcement. So the idea of the price cap, I've talked about it a lot, is to prohibit insurance and other maritime services for shipments of Russian oil if it's not sold at the set price and that set price still hasn't been decided on. The guidance said that the price will be set by a coalition of countries. The Treasury Department said that this price cap is going to take effect on December 5th, so they have a date, but major questions remain about this plan, including how Russia will respond. Moscow has warned of retaliation, and Russian President Vladimir Putin recently said that Russia would cut off energy supplies To any countries that try to impose price caps so as a major oil supplier russia produced this is just an example of what russia could do and one thing they could do is cut oil production which could really send prices skyrocketing again i've gone over this a lot but it's just really they're still going for this plan even though there's all these warnings of of, uh, it could just be a total disaster so just to use some numbers here, in 2021, Russia produced an average of 10.9 billion barrels per day in 2021. Uh, analysts at J.P. Morgan and Chase have warned that Russia could respond in one scenario by reducing oil output by 3 million barrels per day, and that could bring prices up to $190 per barrel. That would, could be the global price, which would be almost double what it is now. And in the worst case scenario, they said Russia could slash production by five million barrels, bringing the prices up to three hundred and eighty dollars per barrel. So that's worst case scenario. And I don't really see that happening while they are still selling so much oil to China and India. But still, these are the numbers that these people are coming out with. And this is really being pushed by Janet Yellen, the Treasury secretary. Because they fear, the, in December, the EU sanctions on Russia Russian oil will kick in, and that will ban insurance for Russian oil shipments. Russian oil shipments rely on European insurers. They'll definitely be able to find alternatives, but there will be an initial, you know, shock because of that. But I think her solution is going to be a lot worse. Um, so the next one, more about price caps. This is from Connor Freeman. And the EU it has backed off its r- Russian energy price cap. So the EU said last week that they were going to propose this price cap on Russian gas, which I don't know how they would try to do that. And this Putin responded that that thing that he said about the price caps, he responded to that uh, by saying we'll cut you off completely. So um, EU ministers they met in Brussels on Friday and they did they didn't agree to this idea, um, which I probably I should have saw this coming because. It was last week when the EU Commission President, Ursula, um, I'm blanking on her name, but she was the one, Ursula von der Leyen, she's in the article, um, but she proposed, she said that they were going to propose it. And I should have figured that a lot of countries, a lot of EU members would oppose it. And according to Connor's article, a minimum of 10 EU states opposed the plan. So 10 out of 27, uh, including Germany, Italy, Poland, and Greece. So the Czech Republic, they didn't even want to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, this this idea is kind of dead on arrival at this meeting of EU ministers just because they can't afford to get cut off of Russian gas right now. Uh, but still, just the fact that they would bring that up and, and even discuss it, it, it just really amazes me. Um Okay. Next section is a ram, but before we get into that, I just want to mention our sponsor. How the West brought war to Ukraine. It's a book by Benjamin Ablo, a short read that summarizes the steps that the U.S. and NATO took to bring about the situation that we see today: NATO expansion, you know, meddling in in Ukraine. And all that stuff. And it's just really a great summary of it. If you need to brush up on those facts, if you don't know much about it, I mean, this is really the best way to do it. I read it in an afternoon and usually takes me a very long time to read books these days. Uh, but it's only $10. You could buy a copy, buy a few copies and hand them out to you know your friends and family that are open minded about this issue and might not know much about it. Link is in the description and in the show notes. $10 go buy it and it helps support the show and it, it supports a good writer who's trying to get a good message out. All right. So the next one here we're getting into Iran. Israel does not believe that Iran the Iran deal will happen before US midterm elections. So this was a senior Israeli official that spoke with reporters on Sunday, said that Israel believes the Biden administration will not rejoin the Iran nuclear deal until at least after the November midterm elections in the U.S. The Israeli official made the comments to reporters before Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid traveled to Germany, where he is expected to continue to lobby against the nuclear deal. So Israel is becoming increasingly confident that its pressure to sabotage a res- restoration of the agreement has worked. The official said that Israel was able to persuade the Americans not to yield to Iran's demands. The U.S. responded harshly to Iran's latest response in the, U- in the EU-mediated negotiations to revive the deal. Again, details of, the res- of Iran's response and what the U.S.- Objected to aren't exactly clear, but this Israeli official laid out a kind of a series of things that he said the U.S. committed to Israel about the negotiations. The Israeli official signaled that the U.S. wasn't prepared to give Iran the sanctions relief that it desired to restore the deal. The official said that the U.S., quote, didn't promise it will lift the sanctions as Tehran wished, which Iran's supreme leader. Ayatollah Ali, um, his name's cut off there, i got to fix that typo, which Iran's supreme leader deems unacceptable, end quote. So Iran has been also been seeking some sort of guarantees for if the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA as it did in 2018, but the Israeli official said the U.S. refused. The official said, quote, the U.S. also committed it will not grant Iran significant guarantees in the event... It will withdraw from the agreement again. Iran didn't accept. End quote. So, because JCPOA isn't a treaty, we could see what the Trump administration did happen again in the next administration. So the U.S. can't guarantee that they will stay in the deal. But Iran, judging by all the reports and reading in between the lines, they've been seeking guarantees that would give the U.S. some sort of consequence if they pull out, like leaving some advanced centrifuges intact. So if the U.S. pulls out, they can get. The centrifuge is running more quickly. And but so this Israeli official is saying that the U.S. refused any of those guarantees. And we know from reporting from Trita Parsi at Responsible Statecraft from last year during negotiations, Iran wanted to guarantee all they wanted was for Biden to say that he would stay in the deal during his term in office. And he couldn't even say that. So that's just been the stance of the U.S. A hardline stance. And the U.S. and Iran have also been at odds over the International Atomic Energy Agency's investigation into traces of uranium found at undeclared nuclear sites. Iran has been calling for the IAEA to close the inquiry before the JCPOA was restored. The Israeli official said, quote, Washington pledged to Jerusalem that it will not pressure to close the ongoing investigation of the IAEA. European countries po- promised the same but Iran didn't accept it, end quote. Israel has been conveying its objections to the JCPOA talks in a series of high-level visits to Washington. The latest official to visit was David Barnea, the head of the Mossad spy agency. Israel has been pressing the U.S. to establish a credible military threat, and the White House said last week that President Biden wants other available options for Iran's nuclear program if the talks fail. So that's the U.S. sort of alluding at possible military action not very diplomatic. The next one here, Iran says that European statement on nuclear deal talks unconstructive. France, Germany, and the UK released a joint statement on Saturday accusing Iran of not taking the negotiations to revive the nuclear deal seriously. The three European countries who are all signatories to the nuclear deal criticized Tehran's demands for the IAEA. This is really what it's about to close its inquiry into uranium traces found at undeclared Iranian nuclear sites. So they said that this demand raised doubts as to Iran's intentions. Um, But we don't really know for sure. I should mention if Iran's response, like we haven't seen it, and kind of the West is trying to shape the narrative here. We don't really know exactly if Iran said that that was a condition to revive the deal, or maybe they were trying to get the US and the Europeans to kind of help push the IAEA to settle this investigation that's been open for years um and the IAEA Iran's tried to explain it they've submitted an explanation to the IAEA and they said that wasn't good enough and they ha- they haven't dropped this uh investigation so Iran's foreign ministry hit back at the statement saying that it was unconstructive and that the three european countries should be working to reach a deal The official said, quote, the three European countries are advised to play a more active role in in providing solutions to end the few disagreements that remain, end quote. Um, So yeah, it's just another sign that things aren't looking good for the deal because the European countries, really these latest negotiations were sparked by the EU and France uh, said that they want before the negotiations restarted that they said, Hey, maybe we should get some of this Iranian oil on the global market as they're facing these soaring energy prices. Um, something that, you know, makes sense, makes sense to me, but doesn't seem like it's anything the U S is interested in, but just the fact that Europe's, you know, they're just saying all these negative things. I think it's safe to say that there's not going to be a deal anytime soon. Um, all right, the next one here, this is interesting. This is from Haaretz, the Israeli, uh, Site, All These ads are popping up. Um, but really, this article just says uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, II, who just recently died, she never f- visited Israel while she was queen uh, from 1952, I think, or the early 1950s when she took power until she died. She never visited Israel. They call it an unofficial boycott. And, you know, she visited Arab countries at the time. It's very interesting. And this says in 1986, Margaret Thatcher became the first British leader to visit Israel. And she was asked when would the Queen visit, and and Margaret Thatcher said, "Well, I'm here," um, and then, but that was it. You know, they never really said why she refrained from visiting. And the line from the from the British, they said that she would visit when there's a sustainable peace. But then this article points out that she had visited um, other countries in the region. This is just interesting. Something I didn't know. Uh, the last news story here. Taiwan confirms for the first time that Chinese that a Chinese drone crossed the median line. So the median line is a unofficial barrier that the United States actually drew uh, down the center of... The Taiwan Strait, and it separates Taiwan side from mainland China side. And for years, they, uh, they, um, China didn't cross this this barrier. But I'll I'll get into that. Uh, so this is according to the South China Morning Post. Taiwan's Defense Ministry first reported a Chinese drone crossed the median line this past Thursday. So on that day, they said 45 Chinese military aircraft were flying in the region and 25 of them crossed the median line and some of them were drones. So that was the first time. So Chinese planes have been crossing the line. This is the first time that Taiwan reported that drones were part of the Chinese aircraft crossing this line. And then Chinese drones continued to cross it in sorties that were reported by Taiwan on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So the reported flights, they come after Taiwan said that it shot down a civilian drone over Kinmen County. Now, Kinmen County, the Kinmen Islands, these this is Taiwanese controlled territory on the su- southeastern coast of mainland China. Their island's just a few miles away from a Chinese city. Um, so on the other side of the Taiwan Strait as the island. So that happened a few weeks ago. And a source close to the China's China's military, the People's Liberation Army, told the South China Morning Post that China had flown drones in this area across the median line before, but it was the first time that it was reported by Taiwan. And this is all part of China's stepped-up military pressure on Taiwan that came in response to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei. Since she visited in early August, Beijing has drastically increased its flights over the median line, a barrier that it used to avoid and U.S. delegations have continued. Since Pelosi visited, there's been five other delegations. It's only September 12th, and she visited August 2nd, I believe is when she arrived there. That's unprecedented, and China has responded with unprecedented military pressure, and the tensions are just continuing to escalate. And according to Japan Times, I cited these numbers last week, but they're pretty... They're just very, uh, they really tell the story here. According to Japan Times, China flew across the median line 302 times, 302 sorties. So 302 planes crossed the median line in August. Between 1954 and August 2020, China flew across that line four times in all those years. And then between September 2020 and Pelosi's visit, Chinese warplanes made the flight 23 times. So it jumped up a little bit in that time in a response to other U.S. visits to the island. But this is, I mean, 302 times in August, and they keep continuing. It's I think it's been every day. Taiwan is reporting that they're crossing this line. And this is an obvious consequence. This is something I saw analysts warning, you know, good analysts that I would trust saying that this is what would happen uh, if Pelosi went through with her trip, and she did, and here we are. And just to mention, China views these trips as very provocative because they see it as Washington moving away from the one China policy. China has repeatedly warned that the issue is a red line and that US support for Taiwan's independence forces could lead to war. Uh, But that's it for the news for today. We got some good viewpoints. As always, we have one from Sam Husseini um, about the death of the queen. that I, that I like, if you want to check that out, he's a great writer. Um, but yeah, that's it for today. Um, contact the show news at antiwar.com support the show. You could do that by buying some sweet merch that we have some new t-shirts. That link is down below. You can follow me on Twitter. You can message me there if you want to chat. Um, and I think that's it. But I will catch you guys tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.